This is Anne-Marie Lewis, and you are listening to We Are Rivers, a podcast series brought to you by American Rivers. Today, we are going to talk about one of the most important dam removal and river restoration efforts in history, the Klamath Dam Removal Project. We're also going to look at how times have changed and how values have shifted, looking at another dam fight on California's Stanislaus River four decades ago that turned the tide for saving wild rivers. The Klamath River flows 257 miles from Oregon to California, where it empties into the Pacific Ocean. The river was once the third largest producer of salmon on the West Coast and supported indigenous communities for thousands of years. But for nearly 100 years, four dams have blocked salmon and steelhead from reaching hundreds of miles of habitat and have harmed water quality for people and wildlife. But that's all about to change. The dams, J.C. Boyle, Copco No. 1, Copco No. 2, and Iron Gate will soon be coming down in a major river restoration project that will have lasting benefits for the river, salmon, and communities throughout the Klamath Basin. By the end of this episode, you will understand why this is one of the most important river restoration efforts the world has seen, as well as the importance of the river for six Klamath Basin tribes, including the Karuk tribe. When we think about how dams have impacted the Klamath, we have to think about how big the Klamath Basin is. The river basin is around the size of Maryland, and it's shaped like an hourglass. The dams are stationed at the skinny part of the hourglass, which effectively denies many fish species access to half of their historic habitat, hundreds of miles of river where spring chinook, fall chinook, salmon, Pacific lamprey, and steelhead used to reach, spawn, and rear. A less obvious problem with the dams is that the upper Klamath Basin is rich with volcanic geology, so the soils are rich in nitrogen and phosphorus, and so the water is what we call hypereutrophic, meaning rich in nutrients. This nutrient-rich water gets trapped behind these dams and heats up in the summer, creating the perfect breeding ground for a species of toxic algae called Microcystis aeruginosa. The algae secretes a potent liver toxin called microcystin, and it's so volatile that every summer, health officials issue warnings along the reservoirs and the lower river, warning people and their pets not to come in contact with the water. In other words, we have reservoirs on the Klamath that, one, impact salmon runs, and two, create water quality issues that are a threat to human and animal health. Additionally, the dams are complicating agriculture diversions because of the toxic algae blooms and stagnant water are causing fish diseases. The majority of our juvenile salmon are dying from these fish diseases, and that's a consequence of having these static river flows below the dams. It's a part of the solution of that was to take water away from agriculture and dilute the disease particles. So if we didn't have the dams in place, we wouldn't have this disease problem, and we wouldn't have to have these flushing flows to flush out these disease spores. So I think with with the improvement of fish health and the improvement of water quality that you get from dam removal, it just makes you know, balance, the water balancing act an easier endeavor. There's a lot of conflict between fish-dependent communities and agricultural communities because there's a natural fight over water. But the best way for farmers to have water and 
for farmers to have fewer regulatory burdens is for there to be a healthy fishery. So I think it's in the best interest of farmers and ranchers to work with us and make sure there's healthy fish, and it's much easier for them to um, grow our food. This is Craig Tucker, a doctor of biochemistry who gave up his work in the lab to become an environmental and social justice activist in 2000. Since then, he's been tirelessly working to have the four dams on the mainstream Klamath removed on behalf of the Karuk tribe, the second largest Native American tribe in the state of California. My role in the Klamath Dam removal started back in about 2002 or 2003. I was working at Friends of the River, an organization that um, Mark Dubois helped start many years ago. And a colleague of mine there named Kelly Catlett came to me, and Kelly's an attorney, and she was representing our interest in the FERC proceeding. And she said, you know, we're going to need to do more than go to FERC meetings. We're going to have to have some kind of grassroots strategy to put pressure on this company to do the right thing. And along with the traditional aspects of a campaign, Craig also took a direct action approach. So we would occupy the power company's offices. We would return their toxic algae to them. Uh, We would liberate billboards with messages about dam removal and we protested at shareholders' meetings. Craig realized early on that he needed to diversify his campaign in order to succeed, and some of the most ardent supporters of the Klamath's health have been the Karuk tribe. So after having worked with an organization called Green Corps, Craig reached out to the tribe. I did reach out to the tribes and built relationships with tribal leadership. At that point, I realized that this river was going to be saved by the native people who have lived here since the beginning of time. It's a great honor for me to to work and represent the Karuk tribe on this. You know, I feel really strongly about rivers for a lot of reasons, but I'll never have the same relationship that Karuk people have with the river, and that's true for the Yurok people and the Hoopa people and the Klamath tribes up in Oregon. The relationship's just different, and it goes back millennia, it goes back hundreds of generations, you know, they certainly have a unique moral authority when they speak to these issues of water and fish. They also have a unique expertise, like traditional ecological knowledge is a real thing. Tribes know how to manage these landscapes. They, they've figured it out over trial and error over millennia. And they also have unique unique legal obligations that California state government and the United States federal government has to tribes. Tribes often can forward senior water rights claims. And so you have these stewards of the place that are permanent stewards of this place, and they're not leaving, and they're going to fight this fight until it's over. So if my grandchildren are built, will be able to fish for wild salmon, it's going to be because tribes in the Pacific Northwest fought this fight because I don't think anyone else is equipped to do it. And that, that's, I think, is the thing that gives me the most optimism about the Klamath. And it's, you know, it's really inspiring when I see the sacrifices people are willing to make to, you know, attend a protest or, or make it to a, a hearing to take their two minutes of time to speak to public officials or, you know, whatever needs to be done. So it's, it's been really inspiring. It's been one of the things that keeps me motivated, keeps me going. And it's just just a real pleasure to work for them. 
after partnering with the Karuk, the campaign to restore the river began to gain momentum. And before I knew it, I was on an airplane to Scotland with about 30 tribal members because the, the dams were owned by Pacificor, which is based in Portland, but Pacificor in turn was owned by Scottish Power, which was a Scottish multinational energy company. So we went back to Scotland three years running to um, essentially crash their shareholders meeting and make the case for dam removal. And just as we thought we'd win it there in Scotland, they sold the dams or sold Pacificor to Mid-American Energy, which is a company that's owned by Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway Investment Holdings Company. So at that point, we had to sort of change gears, but we decided to continue the corporate responsibility campaign. And so we went to Omaha, Nebraska every year for several years uh, to crash Warren Buffett's shareholders party. Um, And so it was a lot of those kinds of protests, but I just want to be clear that it wasn't just protests that got us here. We had scientists that were doing studies and filing reports in the FERC record. We had attorneys doing the hard work of either filing lawsuits or trying to negotiate agreements. Uh, We were brokering uh, working relationships with members of the agricultural community. So it wasn't all, you know, I think if you just read the newspaper, it just looks like we're, you know, doing this sort of exciting direct action campaign. But that was just one component of a multifaceted effort. There are a number of tribes with connections to the Klamath River today who have played a key role in the dam removal and river restoration effort. It's important to stress how central the river is to these tribes in their histories, identities, spiritual and economic well-being, and way of life. I want to make the point that the cultural identities of Karu, Kinyurak, and Hupa people is the river is a the key part of their cultural identity, right? And so the river is important to me, but it's not important to me in the same way it is to them. But I think that it should be really important for me to see those cultures survive too, because just like you need a lot of genetic diversity in a population for it to survive over time, I think civilization needs a certain amount of cultural diversity. Native cultures have... Uh, developed over trial and error over millennia. And so we need to look back to, to the Native people to understand how we manage these resources, how we are active stewards of the fish, how we manage fire in our watersheds. So I just think it's important not only for Native people, but I think for all of us that we make sure these cultures that we're so lucky to still have here uh, survive into the future. I come from sort of really it's sort of the traditional environmental movement. And I say when I say that, I mean middle-aged white guys who championed the environment version of the movement. And I think what I just failed to appreciate until being immersed in, in the climate issues is you know, environmental issues aren't just environmental issues. They're social justice issues. So we're talking about people's access to water. We're talking about people's access to food. There's a lot of Karuk families who don't have easy access to a grocery store and don't have the money to buy stuff if they did have easy access to a grocery store. So, you know, hunting and fishing and gathering uh, is still a really big part of their lives. And so I just didn't really appreciate that until I started working on climate. And I, you know, I try to explain that to people back in D.C. 
in these rural communities, there are people who really still depend on the bounty that the land provides for, you know, a healthy diet and for those basic resources. And the same can be said for many rural communities in America who rely on the land. Indeed, much of the progress that has been made on the Klamath is thanks to the bridge building that has happened between the tribes and the basin's farmers and ranchers. And if the Klamath River Basin isn't restored, the Karuk's culture can't survive into the future in its true form. An example of this has to do with the Karuk's spring salmon ceremony. You know, if there's no spring salmon, it's really hard to have a spring salmon ceremony, right? So the, a key piece of the ceremony is at risk of going extinct. And it would be like if you're Catholic and you went to Mass and there was no wine, right? So it's the same thing. So uh, protecting these resources and protecting the fish and protecting the river, it's so integrated into, into Karuk culture that you can't separate them apart. But it's an unfortunate reality that in order to win these fights for a healthy environment, the arguments often need to transcend cultural significance. Craig believes that in order to win, campaigns need a three-part plan that must address economic needs. Number one, you need to have a committed group of people. Two, you have to have a strategy that's you know, one part grassroots, one part public relations, one part legal, and one part technical and scientific. And then finally, you need to be able to make your case in economic terms. You like to talk about endangered species, impacts to tribes or cultures, but the, really the reason why we're going to win on the climate isn't what the dams do, it's what they don't do. And what they don't do is make a lot of money. They don't provide flood protection for anyone. They don't provide irrigation diversions for anyone. So these dams are just not very useful. And so being able to tell that story you know, there's a whole other group of people willing to listen to our arguments when we start talking in economic terms. Another guest in this podcast will add nuance and some pushback to how our society must always utilize economics and arguments. But here's the question at the heart of the matter. Why were these dams ever even built if they caused so much damage? Fish die off, cultural degradation, toxic algae blooms, it is partly due to the fact that the true costs of the dams in terms of their environmental degradation costs and their harm to the livelihood and well-being of the tribes weren't fully understood when the dams were built. Well, probably a hundred years ago, there were the cutting-edge technology. The four dams we are going to remove were built between 1917 and I think the last one was built in 1962. And over time, as we realize the impacts they're having to water quality and fish, they have to release the water to mitigate for those impacts. So they can't just store all the water and wait till the price of electricity is high. You know, in the summer when everyone comes home from work and turns on their air conditioning, the price of electricity on the spot market goes up, and that's when you'd like to turn on your generators. But you can't run your dams like that. You have to leave water in the river for fish. You have to deal with water quality impacts. So they just can't really operate the dams to, in a way to make a lot of electricity. And over time, uh, natural gas fire power plants, you know, wind energy, solar energy, these other forms of power generation has really become a more cost-effective way of making electricity. So in a lot of ways, these dams are just an outmoded technology. 
In 2008, the Public Utilities Commissions in Oregon and California concluded that removing the dams, instead of spending more than $500 million to bring the dams up to modern standards, would save Pacific Core customers more than $100 million. The Klamath is a story of perseverance. Due to the hard work of so many, including the tribes, as well as the fishermen, conservation organizations, farming and ranching interests, and others, dam removal should begin in the next two years. The last step in the process is the approval of the Governing Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. I think the climate is completely restorable. We can take out these dams. There are no big cities in the climate, one of the least densely populated areas in the lower 48. So we can really put the Klamath back together. And I think you know, there's really two big problems to solve in the Klamath. There's the issue of the dams, which I think we're close to solving. And then there's the issue with irrigation diversions. So a 225,000 acre federal irrigation project is at the top of the Klamath Basin. And it's not related to the dams we're removing. But how much water gets diverted out of Upper Klamath Lake, which is a natural lake, to serve that irrigation project is important to how much water is left in the river for fish. And so that's been a real intractable issue over the years too. But with dam removal, we're going to dramatically improve water quality, we're going to dramatically improve fish health, and I think it makes it easier to solve the issues with the irrigation community. A huge shout out to all of the groups that are a part of the amended Klamath Hydropower Settlement Agreement that has made the restoration of the Klamath River possible, including the Karuk, Yurok, and Klamath tribes, fish and river advocacy groups like Trout Unlimited, California Trout, and American Rivers, commercial fishing groups like the Pacific Coast Federation of Fishermen's Associations, and local, state, and federal public agencies, as well as farming and ranching organizations. At this point in the podcast, we are going to reflect on the shifts that have taken place over the last 40 years surrounding California's and the nation's overall views on rivers and dams with an incredibly respected and almost mythical, as some say, environmentalist, Mark Dubois. As I could almost immediately tell from speaking with Mark, his sincerity and kindness are palpable And so it is no mystery why so many in the river running and river conservation communities admire him. But what I would say about Mark Dubois is that he's a luminary among river activists. You know, he's inspired me and, you know, a whole generation of river activists that came behind him. When I asked Mark how he'd like to be described for this podcast in terms of his credentials, he humbly responded, a student of the river. But... To brag for him, Mark co-founded Environmental Traveling Companions, which helps make outdoor adventures accessible for under-resourced youth and people with disabilities, co-founded Friends of the River, an organization that protects and restores California's rivers, and founded International Rivers Network, which has been in the global struggle to protect rivers and the communities that depend on them since 1985. Additionally, Mark was on the board of American Rivers in 1984 and 1985. And in 1990, Mark coordinated Earth Day's first international effort. And interestingly enough, Craig got involved with his own efforts on the Klamath River thanks to Mark. So I started my career as a river 
activist with Friends of the River. And so I'm really honored to be on this show because I know Mark Dubois is also going to be on the show. And when I started working at Friends of the River 20 years ago, you know, Mark had moved on to other things, but he was this mythological figure to all of us, especially you know, us young staffers. We were, you know, yeah, Mark Dubois, we were familiar with the fight to save the Stanislaus River and the fight against New Maloney. And, you know, there was this legendary story of Mark actually chaining himself to a rock at an undisclosed location in the River Canyon so that if they filled up New Maloney's reservoir, he would drown. It's true. He really did do that. He was protesting the filling of the New Maloney's Dam on California's Stanislaus River, an over 600-foot dam, one of the tallest in the nation, that would flood one of the most famed river sections under a massive reservoir. As the river outfitter Orr's founder, George Wendt, noted in 2016, quote, This was a federally authorized project for water storage and hydroelectric generation, end quote. And, quote, it sounded pretty good on paper for anybody who had not seen what was going to be lost, end quote. But for the people who did know the river, it had to be stopped. The Save the Stanislaus, an environmental campaign, was born along with Mark's Friends of the River. For the next several years, river advocates tried lawsuits, statewide initiatives, congressional legislation, state legislation, publicity campaigns, and executive orders, all to no avail. And when all else failed, Mark was prepared to sacrifice his own body to save the beloved stretch of river and its precious ecosystems. So I don't know when the idea of attaching myself to the canyon came. But a pivotal point for Mark was going down to the river to mourn after his campaign lost to save the Stanislaus. That night, he camped in a beautiful canyon, and he felt hopeless. And so early the next morning, I went hiking up Wool Hollow, and this, the limestone cliffs were coming down, the waterfall was coming down, the butterflies were dancing, the water skeeters were in the water, the great lions were reaching out, and in a moment... I felt the life of that place. And by then I had learned that we weren't building this dam because it made any economic sense. It wasn't going to give that much power nor water. We were doing it because of old momentum. And that was a pivotal point that made me know I was going to have to do whatever I could to speak for the life and the miracle and the beauty of this place. But tying himself to a rock to possibly drown was not an easy decision. I also didn't want to commit suicide. I wanted the Army Corps of Engineers. They were consciously flooding 9 million years worth of evolution, so I wanted them to consciously flood one more little critter, me, um, if that's what they were going to do. So I drafted my letter to the Army Corps that night. The next morning I go to a hardware store and finally find out how I'm going to attach myself to the bedrock. And as I deliver my letter to the Army Corps and then I deliver it to Jerry Brown, the governor, the new governor of California, I went out of his uh, office and I went to pay homage to a little toyon tree, the only living thing from the lower canyon. The reservoir had been rising, filling the lower canyon. Everything there now was drowned. And I went to see this little tree the shrub, and it had grown so much 
And in one moment, I was filled with the most powerful sensation in my life. I knew that I was no longer afraid of anything because I knew that by speaking for life with all of my life, it didn't matter whether I was around for one more week or I had another hundred years. It was, I was speaking on behalf of this sacred miracle that we live in and, and it didn't matter. Mark spent a week tied to the canyon's bedrock, and a friend would bring him food and water. And, to Mark's surprise, it was one of the most beautiful weeks of his life. I don't like sitting very much. I'm always in motion. I could never stand fishing because uh, I had to stand in one place, and I like moving. And all of a sudden, I was attached to a bedrock with six inches worth of motion. And, you know, I'd been down the river hundreds and hundreds of times more than anyone that I know of. And being in that canyon, being in one place, watching the sunrise, watching the sunset, feeling the magic of the days pass, I was convinced I was going to be bored, but the beauty just stunned me. And it took me days to even see it. You know, eventually realized that the Lizard came out on a rock at a certain time every day when the sun was just right. And it took me three days to pay attention enough to the noise rustling in the dead leaves next to me of a shrew that poked its head out. It was, it was humbling to again feel, be that much a part of the miracle of sunrise and sunset and the beavers coming out at a certain time of the day and the otter that we didn't even know existed coming out at another time in the day. And it was punctuated by, I have also never been prey before. And every time I heard the the, uh, helicopters and the motorboats, I quickly went into flight syndrome and panic and had to hide underneath my little rock and put a dead twig in front so that they wouldn't be able to see me. A year after Mark chained himself to the rock, effectively preventing the flooding that year, the reservoir began to fill. When I asked Mark, what was it like for you when it finally was flooded? A 20-second heavy silence ensued, followed by... You know, I um, I still don't have any words for that. Um, I went up uh, to the reservoir some time after it had been filled, and uh, I drove around the little bend, and I saw the reservoir, and it just started bawling and howling, and I just kept um, crying for such a long, long time. After a long time, I thought, well, okay, I... I grieved so much I will never have to do that again. And, uh, I didn't know how long I could be because it's, uh, you know, the miracle of every, every, every foot of that place. Um, life oozed out of every, every round foot of it. Um, and there's no words to describe that. I, I, I recently found uh, one of the um, one of our amazing photographer friends, 
put together a little booklet of photographs, and I looked at all these beautiful photographs, and I just, I started crying again, because I'm going, we were trying to get elected officials to change their mind, and they were looking at these pictures that were beautiful, but they didn't even come close to conveying the magic that, that transformed every life who had the privilege of going down that canyon. It changed everyone. It took everyone's breath away. It was way beyond words. And yet, we don't have vocabulary for it. None of us could talk about it. You know, today, people talk about saving rivers, but even then, we had to use the language of uh, economics and power and needs and water. And we can say, well, oh, it's valuable for recreation. But we don't know how to say recreation. We don't know how to say this place heals souls. This place connects us to life and to miracle. And yes, we all need to eat. And we don't have to plunder the earth to do that. And the canyon never stopped expanding in its complexity for Mark because the intricate features of the place only slowly bored their way into his identity as he truly reconnected to nature. You know, my first visit to the Stanislaw looking for caves was, oh, this is, these caves are really nice. And, oh, this country is really dry and barren. I was used to camping in the high Sierras where it's always green. After that first reaction, over the next years and years, I slowly still more and more in love with the place, the critters, the plants, every, every dimension of it. And yet, like most people I know, we're raised in cities where we're disconnected from it. So we weren't looking up. We're all trained not to look at billboards and neon lights. So it took me a hundred times going down the Stanislaw before I could finally see where Stony Creek came into the canyon, drinking in and absorbing this place that, despite my blindness, it slowly wove itself into my, uh, my being. I still don't feel like I have uh, any words in English to describe what the place tried to teach me. From my perspective, our vocabulary doesn't come close to conveying the beauty, the magic, the miracle, the connectedness. Losing the Stanislaus was a tremendous blow, but it marked a turning point. It was the last fight against a big dam that the environmental community lost the end of the big dam building era. And it fired up a generation of river advocates to protect more healthy, free-flowing rivers in California and nationwide. Again, in the words of the late George Wendt, the founder of the Outfitter Oars, losing the stand, quote, showed me that beautiful places have to be shared or there's no constituency that can be mobilized to fight for them. So how do we start to get back to a more balanced culture that can truly appreciate the value of free-flowing rivers and wildlife and nature, of which we're all a part? You know, when we ask, how do we have balance with uh, 
dams and hydropower and our energy and water infrastructure needs, especially in the era of climate change, it feels to me like balance? <laughs> what do you mean balance? We we have never been in balance with this earth. We we inherited a culture that only knows how to take. It's sort of like if you entered a relationship with someone that only wanted to take everything from you and never gave back. That is the relationship we have with this earth. We take and take and take. So energy and water, dams, take it. You know, damn it. As long as we can make money, we take it. My sense is with all of these things, we are so disconnected and we're so attached to the human hubris of our genius is so important that it's my response. I, I still get to waste all the energy I want because I don't want to be accountable. And so I don't know how we fall in love enough with this earth enough that we devote all of our creativity in a way that serves the future, does not steal from the future. And everything we've been doing has been stealing from the future. And our modern lives are the beneficiary of our ancestors' genius. So we have electric lights, power, we have food, but it has not at all come from any balance. So the challenge to me is how do we learn to live and unleash our creativity to live with this earth. So now it's time we get the opportunity to learn what it's like to truly live with our rivers. You know, if we dammed up our arteries, we know what happens when that happens. We're so small and naive that we are still learning what happens when we dam rivers. It's a great time for humans to learn balance. It's no one generation's fault either that we are out of balance and disconnected. We inherited a system where people back in the 30s had just come, were coming out of a depression. They didn't have much food. They didn't have work. And so they discovered building dams made it so they could irrigate the arid west and it put people to work. So we ran into a 1930 or 40 engineer's handbook and in the, the first page of it was a prologue that was in the shape of a large V and it said the only thing left of the Roman and the Greek times were their aqueducts and viaducts and I could feel as much reverence for their engineering as I had for, that we had for rivers. So they, they, they took a good idea and sort of ran it into the ground. When, when I first started in the early 70s, there was a map of California that where in the place of where the rivers should have been, there was dam pool, dam pool, dam pool, dam pool, all the way up. So literally there was no free-flowing water left anywhere. The engineers had gone to the essentially damming everything. 
not thinking how much would be evaporated, not thinking that there's only so much runoff on the river. And they were doing the best they could. Engineers are really smart people. They build one small dam and get a large pool of water. Well, eventually, New Maloney's Dam was the 27th dam on the river. So as the 27th dam, the other dams already captured most of the water. There was almost no new water to capture. So you can have as many bathtubs as you want, but if you don't have rain to fill them, you know, you can only capture a little bit. So building more bathtubs, you just get more empty bathtubs rather than, you know, if you put the bathtubs in the desert. So, uh, but again, it was it seemed like a great idea, and then it was uh, it was sort of run into the ground. And now we can make corrections. There, our ancestors did the best they could, and now we can make corrections on and and uh, learn to live with this planet instead of uh, just taking from it. If I could look back over these forty, fifty plus years of beginning to fall in love with the river and then my whole life um, being changed by a love affair with the river. We spent so much of our time defensively trying to apologize that, no, we're not trying to stop progress. And so, yes to learning economics, yes to learning cost-benefit ratios, and yet there's something that transcends cost-benefit ratios. And once we know that, then we'll make true cost-benefit ratios that make sense for humanity and the future, not just short-term economics that, you know, companies gain and a few people gain. And so learning to give voice to this earth. And then we get to speak from a different place. And we get to learn how to shift what we call our modern paradigm, where we've accepted everything is just take, 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 take. I can make money, it's mine. And we learn to live in sacred reciprocity. We learn to live with, and we learn to unleash our genius. The corollary of that is learning that we inherited the best our ancestors could, could do. And so instead of wasting time yelling and complaining, you know, dam builders did a phenomenal bunch of work and, and they came with a different set of values. And so instead of wasting our time fighting and complaining about any of them, how do we bring all of us together to invent and co-create solutions that really serve the future? When the Klamath dams come down, the world will be watching. Together, we'll witness the dramatic demolition. We'll wait for the waters to run free and clear and for the first salmon to swim back upriver. We'll be watching for signs of healing and reconnection. And hopefully, we'll learn how healing a river can also heal our communities, our relationships, and ourselves. To learn more about the Klamath River restoration effort, visit AmericanRivers.org slash Klamath. 
And thank you for listening to We Are Rivers, a podcast series brought to you by American Rivers. Tune in to our next episode to continue the conversations about river conservation. And if you learned something in this piece or enjoy the series, please write and comment. This helps others discover our podcast series too, and we appreciate your support.